Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Hi, Matt. Hi, Sherry. <laughs> I think we should start with a listener question. A listener question? What a great idea. Yeah. We've been doing this for a while now, but let's remind our listeners just in case they don't remember. If you have a question for us that you'd like us to address on the Untoxicated Podcast, keeping in mind that we are not psychologists or therapists, so this is not medical advice. This is just our experience and uh, our thoughts on whatever the topic might be. You can send that question to Matt at soberandunashamed.com. Today's question is a long one. I'm going to direct quote one person's question, but this is a question that we've been asked several times. So it's like a conglomeration of several people's question, but I just took, I don't know, someone who spelled it out really well, and I'm going to read their, mm-hmm. their version of this question we've been asked multiple times. Matt, after trying for 10 years to find true sobriety, was there a defining moment that final time that told you that you were going to be successful? Sherry, knowing that you were just done at this point, how long was it before you were able to put any level of faith that this final attempt would be for the long haul? And then the third third part to this three-part question, and how did you reconnect knowing relapse could happen? That's a meaty one, not just in word count, but also in sentiment. So, I mean, the first part's addressed to me. Matt, after trying for 10 years to find true sobriety, was there a defining moment, that final time, that told you you were going to be successful? For me, it was more of an accumulation than some, like, light bulb coming coming on. So, as we have shared, I had what I would consider a 10-year period of active addiction. I drank for 25 years. But I think for the first 15 years, I certainly overdrank sometimes. I had regrets. I said stupid things. But I really feel like I hadn't crossed the invisible line into addiction. But then once I did, and I guess there's kind of a defining moment associated with that, after I tried to quit for the first time and was unsuccessful... That's when I really feel like, okay, this is an addiction. I wasn't unsuccessful as in I couldn't go a day without a drink. It wasn't anything like that. But I quit for a few weeks and it just had too strong of a pull and I went back to it. And so so they're, they're, again, not at all the listener's question. But there was kind of a defining moment to my addiction. But over the course of that 10-year period, there were lots of different attempts. I tried you know, to be the non-alcoholic beer connoisseur and learn everything about that. I did a lot of different versions of just white knuckling. I'm just going to do the things I always do. I'm just strong and smart and I can do this. Uh, I quit for you. I quit for myself. I quit for our kids. There were, and, and over the course of that 10 years, there was just an accumulation of information. I did a lot of reading, not just once I got sober, but during that 10 years, I like Caroline Knapp's memoir, A Dr- Drinking a Love Story, I've probably read that 10 times. And I probably read it 
I don't know, six or seven times before that final attempt at sobriety. So like anything, I think hard in life, you got to practice to be good at it. Now, that's not to say that there aren't people that get sober on the first attempt and they make it over the hump. Good for them. I'm a little bit jealous. I am proud of all the people that I know who are in that boat. That's great. But for me, it was, you know, like like by the time I made it to the last attempt at sobriety, I look back on that time when I thought I would be the non-alcoholic beer connoisseur. And I think, what were you thinking? That's just a ridiculous thing to aspire to. It had to do with identity. Definitely as a drinker, I drank IPAs. I drank straight hard alcohol without a mixer at the end. And I didn't do that just because it would get me drunk faster. I did it because it was manly and tough. And I was in the steel <laughs> industry and the customers that I went to dinner with drank vodka on the rocks with no no mixer. And I was that way too, although I preferred whiskey. Uh, so there was an identity piece that I had to shake loose of. So the, the answer is no. There wasn't a... I mean, I was definitely determined every time I quit. But the determination would wane. From the outsider's point of view... I mean, I'm not really an outsider, but outside of your brain. Inside outsider. Yeah, outside of your brain. For me, when you're describing all that, I feel like you just had to be that person that had to try everything to hold on, to manage it, without really that, like... Letting go, you know, I hate that let go, let God sort of thing, but you had to like almost be broken because you have always had to kind of learn things the hard way. There are people that have that personality type. And so going through it and trying and exhausting every situation and analyzing you had, you just, you know, and you, you just had to know for sure that it really was something that you could do and could do well I don't know. I just feel like it was like a bunch of lead ups to the final attempt. And that's why you were successful. And um, because you had just gathered all these tools and information and really tested yourself. You know, in a lot of ways, we talk a lot about how arrogant I was as an active alcoholic and how arrogant a lot of people are as active alcoholics. Certainly a piece of that is that I had had some success. I had also had some failure, but I had had some success as it relates to career and just other things I had tried in life, right? Mm -hmm. So I thought I was pretty smart. And so when we talk about getting over the hump, a big hump was me coming to grips with the fact that I couldn't go from where I was to the kind of drinker I wanted to be. I didn't care that there were lots and lots of examples of other people who couldn't do it. I really thought I could do it. I thought I was... You know, this is awful, but I thought I was better than most people. And so just because somebody else couldn't moderate, even if they had had, you know, example after example after example of excessive drinking that was causing turmoil and chaos, just because someone else couldn't do that, I thought I'd be able to. And I I mean, I spent a decade trying to prove that I would be able to. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I, and I know that that's not, you know, I'm not just... Mentioning that because I feel like, you know, being self-deprecating and I feel like uh, throwing a little shade my own direction. I'm saying that because I know there's a ton of people out there that are like that. And so one of the messages that I think that it's important to get across is we literally know about like thousands of cases of alcoholism at this point. 
whether it's people we know firsthand or stuff we've read. I know of zero out of a thousand or thousands or whatever it is, zero cases where someone was able to moderate once they had crossed that line. And that would have helped me to have known that. I definitely thought I was smarter than most people and thought I could figure it out. But if if, if someone had told me it's never been done before, ooh, that might have been a little bit different. That might have been helpful information to uh, for me to weigh in there. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I'd kind of couple that with what you were saying. Um, and so, yeah, no, no definitive time. No, no, for sure. This is going to be the one. I mean, another thing that I did when I made it was I, you know, I started the Sober and Unashamed blog and I started it way before I started publishing it. I mean, there was a lot of work going on behind the scenes to write the articles. I worked with a writing coach. I had to figure out how to set up the website. All of that stuff took place before it was actually published at my one year sober mark. And so, but that wasn't, that also wasn't the first time I had written. I I've, have found recently um, files from when I wrote at previous attempts. So, um, so no, nothing definitive, just an accumulation. Wow. That was a lot more minutes on that than the listener. I mean, I feel bad because I know what the listener wants. The listener wants, hey, Matt, what's the indication that my partner has figured this out and they're going to be sober forever? I, I can't tell you what that is because for me, there was no such thing. It was just an accumulation. And then then all of a sudden, not, not all of a sudden, then over time, sobriety just was better than drinking and the fear of relapse mm-hmm. became less and less and less. What was it like for you? You're, you want me to read your question again? Um, yeah. Sherry, knowing that you were just done at this point, how long was it before you were able to put any level of faith that this final attempt would be for the long haul? Um, I felt like, you know, it was a few months into this attempt of, you know, this final attempt of sobriety. It was a few months before I, I try, I paid any attention really, um, again, because I was done and I just didn't want to hear your BS uh, and then I think I did start to notice some of the, some of the things that you were doing to replace some of your drinking time, um, which was reading or writing and, um, you took a little bit more time for yourself. I mean, there were a couple times in the past that your attempts at sobriety where you would take off in a drive, but I feel like you were just more, you, you stepped back away from me to give me that space a little bit because you could tell I was done. So I feel like you're, you were reading me. So I felt like that added to the seriousness of this and that you were being, trying to make this attempt work because you were paying attention to things other than yourself a little bit. Still there's selfishness involved. Um, It's interesting. I think it might've come across that way, but I think more than anything, I wasn't getting much in the way of support from you. I mean, you weren't horrible. You weren't like screaming and yelling at me, but you weren't my cheerleader either. I think I get, you know, your interpretation of me giving you your space was, I'm not getting anything from her. So why would I go and ask for it? And maybe, yeah, maybe that's the way to describe it. Maybe it wasn't that you were giving me my space, but you really were because I was like, you know, that that was the result. Yeah. Because you were taking care of this of yourself and I didn't have to be your support. I didn't have to hear you. Like, I didn't, I wasn't the one trying to fix this or help you or listen. Yeah. Um, so that, 
that meant that you knew that I was serious and I felt like you understood the severity of the situation. Um, I also, you know, obviously your coming out email made it a lot more significant um, when you wrote an email telling everybody that you were an alcoholic and you'd been sober for a year and I felt like, well, gosh, you can't go back then, you know, to drinking. So that would be pretty hard. So that certainly, and I don't expect everybody to do that, even to come out to anybody. But that was a solidifying moment that made me think, oh, God, well, and if he does drink again, then I could get off scot-free and I could get out of here. Talk about that a little bit, because I think that's important. Well, I just felt like if, if everybody knew, pretty much, that I knew... And you started to drink again. I mean, that would just be like, look, you you came, you told all these people that you were going to stop drinking and that you were going to stay sober. And then, you know, not only did you give the big F you to me and the kids and our family, but to everybody else. So who, who could, how can you be reliable? How can you be dependable? How can you be trustworthy after that? It's, it's not so much that it would have been the relapse, but it's just that severity and level, and I remember the night before you sent it out, you were mo- up most of the night, and you would talk to me about it, and I felt like, quite honestly, oh, that's a stupid idea, but okay. <laughs> I mean, to put yourself out there, you know, but like that. But I, then I knew, like, God, he is really serious. There is a huge burden on the loved ones, on the spouses, when they are when when there is so much secrecy around the drinking. And even the sobriety, as was the case for us. My parents knew, your mom and sister knew, my sister knew that was about it. Well, you know, a year into my sobriety. Um, when I went public that way, it's like this huge burden shifted. I, I just don't think we can overestimate how big a deal that was. A huge burden shifted off of you on to me, I guess, but in a good way, because, you know, if I was to relapse, you said it was a, you would get off scot-free, is that what you said? Or, well, I guess. I mean, not necessarily, but I felt like, boy, then there can never, yeah. Or, or when a woman there leaves a man. There never be questions. Yeah, when a woman leaves a man or there's a divorce or a man leaves a woman, I guess it doesn't matter. There's always two sides to that. What happened? But here, I had just announced to the world... Here's what happened. I'm a drunk. So both sides align. What I'm saying and what you potentially could be saying. So you could leave. I mean, it was like permission to leave if I drank. Yeah. Well, and I could. That, that when their secrecy is there, you don't have that. Because as much as internally you know this is creating chaos and turmoil, this is awful for my kids, at least a piece of it, if you're a human being, at least a piece of it is what are people going to think? Mm-hmm. And the what are people going to think completely was gone at that point. Yeah. I mean, I know because we we experience divorce vicariously through people. And we see where the family gets divided. Right? The, the adult children of the alcoholics and the spouse might might side with the alcoholic because the, the spouse is the one that left. Well, you broke up the family. That was taken off of you. Mm-hmm. And so not only so I, I now I sound like a martyr, right? Oh, I'm such a big great guy. I took that <laughs> and, off. And of it's my question, but go ahead. But <laughs> <coughs> my 
But not only does it take that weight off of you and put it on me, but that's a really good thing. Because I guess back to answering my first question, um, that was a moment when I knew there was no going back once I had announced it to the world. I mean, and the world, like the world didn't care. I had announced it to my little world. Yeah. The world still doesn't care. I'd announced it to, you know, everyone I knew. So, yeah, that, that. Like customers of our business, people that you had had done business with in the real it's world. Not so like it was a lot of, a of paper people. bag in an alley. Right. You know, around a trash can yeah. on fire. Like it's not like I had degenerate friends. Like there's no way my friends would have if I'd have, you know, started drinking at a party or at a bar that have been like, dude, what are you doing? You right. can't drink. So that was a definitely a defining moment. Yeah. And I think I had been feeling the build up of it a little bit before that. Just like I said, because you were just, it was so, it, I don't know, it was just a feeling that I got. That it and was the different? words that you did say to me and share with me, it was just different. The way your behavior was, the the diving into the reading and the writing. And um, I know still there was, I mean, I, I don't even remember. I feel like one time, and maybe it was during that part of sobriety or maybe it was that summer before. Or, you know, this, like, the summer of that first year that you were still quiet about your sobriety. I feel like you just happened to help some... You came to do something with the church that I work at, and they hosted an AA meeting, and you almost went up to it. I I don't remember which summer it was. It was either the summer before you quit drinking while you were struggling and you had stopped periodically off and on. Because you had had a really bad fall and summer that year before you quit drinking. And then, but I feel like just you even, and because I, I remember just thinking you even said, I don't know, something was telling me to go up there to that meeting. And yeah. then you changed your mind. But I was like, you even being that close to going into a place with other people to talk about your alcoholism would have been a huge step. Yeah. Because you'd always been so secretive about it and denied it and just didn't want to be that kind of That's what I mean when I talk about an accumulation. It just just built and built and built the the stuff that we learned, the stuff that I learned, and then the the humility was an accumulation too. Mm -hmm. It took a long time for someone as arrogant as me to realize that I wasn't going to be able to just say, Oh, I quit drinking. Now let's, let's go to a Broncos game and everyone else in the place will be drinking. No problem. I'll be, I'll be fine. Took me a long time to realize I wasn't strong enough for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How about the last part of the question? And how many, Oh, pardon me. And how did you reconnect Knowing relapse could happen. One of the things that we talk with people about in our Echoes of Recovery program is when they talk about how, hey, I'm having trouble dropping my defense mechanisms. My wife, my my husband's been sober for three weeks and I'm I'm still, you know, waiting for the other shoe to drop. And, and what we always say is don't drop your defense mechanisms after three weeks. Mm-hmm. Let it happen naturally. You you in most cases certainly in your case Sherry you took years decades really to build up that protective outer layer that you had and the the ability to disconnect or to detach for me emotionally 
that was hard earned. Yeah. And so we tell people, don't try to reverse that immediately. That will be there to protect you in case of relapse. So how would you address that? How did you reconnect knowing relapse could happen? I mean, it could technically still happen now. It, you're right. You could relapse now. That's true. Um, I think it just was time. And like you said, I didn't drop my walls too soon. And just that slow building back of trust. Um, having new experiences that kind of, er, not erased, but replaced, replaced yeah. some of those bad memories, repeated good experiences with situations where there could be drinking involved or had been a bad experience that happened at a certain, you know, annual Christmas party or, um, you know, event, seasonal event or family vacation. So just, it was time and just seeing... Honestly, repeated good behavior, and it makes me feel sort of like I'm your parent, but, you know, seeing you behave well and respond well and react well, react well to things that, if they didn't go well, how you responded and reacted to that even, like you learning to kind of deal with a negative situation and not want to turn to drinking and take it out on me, even, or, you know, even if you didn't drink like the less emotional relapses. So it was just time and relationship building and you being able to, after you were sober for a year and a half, we did some things that made me feel like I um, could open up more because you allowed yourself to have conversations with family members and our children to get their responses of your behavior, you know, their, their reactions and you took it. And so it was just time and a buildup. Yeah. I love what we've heard. I would like to attribute this, but I can't remember who said it. So apologies, but you, you are moving past the trauma and healing when you can revisit traumatic events without it re-traumatizing you. Mm Mm-hmm. And that is one of the hardest things for the alcoholics to do. We get to the, or we often say, especially in early sobriety, gosh, when are we ever going to move forward? Why do you have to keep revisiting the past? When are you going to let that go? Why do we have to go back there? Um, Can't you see I'm sober now? It's different. And the reason we do that is because we don't want to go back there. When it brings shame to us to revisit the truth of the past, we've still got a long way to go in healing at the point that we are at now we can talk about anything that's happened in the past and i i think of it as like a a third party did that like that was that definitely isn't me i mean it was the me that i used to be so i suppose there's still a tinge of guilt but for the most part i mean i can definitely have the conversation no problem without it re-traumatizing me i I'm not that person anymore, and there's no chance I'm going to be that way. But the time that's involved is always just mind-bogglingly surprising to people. I mean, we are six years sober, and I'm noticing things just recently that are really cool, actually. Your ability to bounce back from, like if I'm short, if I'm just uh, not super patient and I kind of snap like not 
anything big, but right. I snap an answer at you. In the past, that would have shifted your mood for some period of time. I'm not trying to mm-hmm. over-dramatize No, it. I mean, I, I think that a lot of us do walk on eggshells and we are defensive and we, um, as the loved ones. So, yes, it seems silly to say that you could snap at me and then I would go inward. And it could be for a long time because I just didn't trust because I didn't know where it would lead. But just recently, I've noticed that whether it's I notice it and I'm like, "Ooh, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm being quick and short with you," or you call my attention to it. it as soon as we address it, it's like it's over, mm-hmm. and this is bizarre. This is bizarre for me to address a problem yeah. real time and have it be over. It's really cool. Yeah, and I'm also, you know, I was pretty feisty and a hothead when we um, were first together and through the marriage, and alcohol didn't help that at all. Um, but I just, I feel like I can address it in real time because we have had better conversations over the years since you've been sober and, and we've really worked on our communication skills. So that makes it so much easier to have a real, you know, a real time conversation like, Hey, that was kind of, I felt like that was kind of crass or rude or whatever. And even if it doesn't take you until, you know, a few hours to realize, Oh, maybe I was. I don't feel like I hold it against you. I'm not adding everything up again like I used to. Another thing that has helped with that is like the self-realization that comes with the work of recovery. I I don't like if I'm short with you and I can see that I've stung you a little bit in the past. My reaction would have been, oh, get over it. Mm-hmm. Be tougher. I'm I'm having a rough day. I didn't do anything terrible. You know, grow up, Sherry. And I I mean, I can't believe that's how I used to behave. Now I look at it like, oh, I hurt the person I love most in the world. Um, maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe I should maybe I should apologize as opposed to blaming her for being sensitive or or just I don't even know what. But I used to constantly be like, you know, my shit doesn't stink. What do we need to do to fix you? And, you know, there's something very liberating about not going through life feeling that way anymore. About you or other people, too. It's pretty great. So that is the answer. I mean, there's a reason why the direction that we, our communication, the direction that the podcast goes, the direction that some, maybe, maybe half of the the blog posts go now is all toward this last part of this question. How did you reconnect knowing that relapse could happen? Not not with that level of specificity, but our work is on relationship recovery now far more than it is on sobriety for high-functioning alcoholics because this is the hard part. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. Sobriety is hard, but there are lots of resources out there for people trying to stop drinking. Trying to stop drinking and save your marriage, that to me is you know, exponentially harder and there's just not a lot of people talking about it. So we keep talking about it. It's very complicated. Yeah. And there's lots of parties involved. I mean, I know marriages too, but there's other people that are involved because when you're married, if you have kids, you have extended family, you've inherited. I thought you meant lots of parties involved. Like let's party. (laughs) No. You mean people. People. Yeah. Well, speaking of let's party, let's transition (laughs) from our listener question, which again, if you would like to ask a listener question, Matt at SoberAndUnashamed.com. 
the listener question inflow kind of slowed down to a trickle over the holidays. We'd like to get that back up. We'd love to hear from you. But speaking of parties, alcohol enhanced or took center stage for some really fun times in our lives, Sherry. And one of the things that I think is a challenge, and I know I hear this from others as well, how can we reconcile the hatred for the toxin alcohol that we feel now with the fun that it brought us for a long period in our lives? And I want to start by diving into the deep end of the pool on this question. You know, I would argue that if not for alcohol, you and I would not be together. And since I consider you to be the biggest blessing in my life and I love you, you know, more each day, I can't imagine us not being together, but I don't see how we ever would have found each other without alcohol. We met in a bar, for heaven's sake. Yeah, on your 21st birthday. Yeah. That's when I first met you. Pretty despicable. Pretty despicable. Let's set the stage there a little bit. Not only was it my 21st birthday, but... At the bar where you and I eventually worked. Well, we both worked there. We just didn't know each other, I guess. Well, you worked there. And you worked at the other bar. You worked there and then you quit for that school year. And then you started. And I had started. Oh, okay. Well, I had. When I was under 21, I was working in the door. I was just carting people. Yeah, and we never. But eventually we served and bartended together. Yes. But it was the late night bar at. Indiana University where we attended and so you would go other bars first and then you would end up at the bar where we worked yeah so by the time they got me there my friends got me there on my 21st I was already in blackout I'm pretty I don't remember meeting you at all or seeing you at all yeah I think I well I one of your friends that was um one of the door guys reserved my section and so I had to kick people out so you could... It wasn't even that late. I'm going to embarrass you. I don't even think it was that late that you yeah. showed up there. But it wasn't our first stop. But it wasn't your first stop. And you had probably been drinking at the fraternity yeah. before. Um, so I think it was like 10 or 10.30. Yeah. And the bar stayed open until 3, 3 and we stopped, you know, closed the doors at 3.30. So yeah. there was still a long time to go. But I remember well, having... I sure wasn't going to make it till 3 or Yeah, 3:30. but I still had... Yeah, I remember having to like start kicking some people out and say, oh, this is reserved and... You guys still didn't pay me enough, but I did that because your friend was my friend. Yes. And, yeah. Yeah, so so that was... not, just to, to paint the picture for our listeners even better, I also had a bald head then. And No, it was so moment. No, it was... No. Yes, it was. Or it was just... It was the peach fuzz just coming back. Well, this was in March. All right, you always know these things better than me. Anyway, I guess he had a, he had full you had hair, you had hair a full head of hair, you did because then you started doing funny things with your hair. I had before like a, you had you didn't. You I had this mental so. crisis that I was about to graduate and I was going to have to have a suit and tie job and I would never be able to have a mohawk, so I really wanted a mohawk. Which is, like, that's just a really bizarre thing for someone to have on their, you know, college graduation bucket list, however you would say that. Yeah, so it was your junior year. That's why I know it was your junior year. You hadn't started interviewing because that would have been your senior year. You did the crazy hair stuff after the end of March because the next time I saw you was when you had, like, stupid hair. But I I was like... wrong about that, but we can let that go. You're almost... But I just remember, like, looking at you thinking, gosh, 
he, why is he so drunk? Is I didn't believe it was your 21st birthday. Probably because you didn't have a mohawk, and I am right. You had a nice head of hair. You didn't look like a fool. And I thought, why is he so drunk? And your friend that worked at the bar said, no, it is his 21st. And I said, no way, because he looks too old. <laughs> he looked old in, in college. That's why I know. So I have no recollection of that night, but obviously we would not have met if I hadn't been in a bar drinking alcohol on my 21st. Yeah, so it's hard to like, argue that we wouldn't have met then. But then... But you started the, working The first there, time then. we, like, hooked up, I think, is the best way to say that. I mean, we were college kids, and that's what college kids do. First time we hooked up was at a party that summer, mm-hmm. that next summer. And I know the timing's right there because it was in a... We, my, we always got kicked out of our fraternity house during the summer. And it was a house that I was living in, like sub-renting from some other fraternity friends for that summer. And that was heavy, heavy alcohol that night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you and your friends would not have come to our house for the little house party we were having had we not been serving alcohol. So just so that the blade cuts both ways, uh, you wouldn't have shown up that night if we'd have been like, we're having a dry party. Do you want to come over and play <laughs> Pinochle? Like, that would not have happened. I, I don't know. Pinochle, I've never played it. Hmm. Maybe I would have. I don't know. I had I had a variety of friends. But, yes, the reason we went there was because we had been drinking. We knew you guys were having a party. We knew you guys would have alcohol. So we came. Yeah. Yeah. Um, pretty much every, I mean, our first date, we went to, like, a Irish pub restaurant that was nice. Um, but what else were people that were we 22, drank. 21, what were they supposed to do? Well, there wasn't a whole lot of like non-alcohol related things with our circle of friends. I mean, I hope college. our kids are figuring that out. Not well, to say that... I said with our circle of friends. Yeah. Like our drunks that we hung out with. Yeah. Fellow fellow drunks that we hung out with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so that first official date, not the hookup, but the first official date... We went to a uh, Irish pub, and you ordered a steak. I remember because I didn't have a lot of money. And when we were looking back on that, you have admitted you were testing me <laughs> to see if I would flinch when you ordered a steak. Yes, and I thought, God, I don't even know if I'll ever go out on a date again. And I'm God dang it, I'm going to eat steak. You were I, a smart, I was poor. You were a smart first dater. I feel like you were. And, I'm not it wasn't my first first date. You know? That's what I'm saying. I'm not trying to make you sound <laughs> slutty, but you were an experienced first dater. You were getting your money's worth, and that that was brilliant of you. Thank you. But we drank mm-hmm. at that, and every other. I mean, I I don't think there was probably for maybe ever until I quit drinking until the first time I tried sobriety. There was probably not a single time when we went out to dinner when I didn't drink, and ninety some percent of those times you drank at yeah. least one or two. Right. Whether you were getting smashed or not. We had, so then we ended up working in the bar together. Alcohol played a big role there because we wouldn't have had jobs had not there been alcohol. Uh, But then after we would close, we would go to somebody's house. Because you're, I mean, we worked at a serious, like we got slammed. It was hard working bar. And so it wasn't the kind of bar like you see in movies where the bartenders are drunk and they're all drinking the whole time. We didn't do that. In fact, you and I both saw people get fired who drank on the job Mm -hmm. while we worked there. So you, you know, what you basically do is drink caffeine all night till three o'clock in the morning. And when you close the bar and then you're all wired, we would go often, the bartenders and servers would go together to somebody's house and, 
and then we would drink and people would smoke weed and um kind of wind down and have a little bit of a late night right but so that was the wind down so had alcohol not been a part of the wind down i wouldn't have had anything to do with that wind down right um so again alcohol played a prominent role i remember um you know moving a little further down the road when we were married i remember going having a wine tasting event when we were in wine country in california which we did that a couple of times, but I remember not the honeymoon time, but the time after we were married when we were with some business colleagues of mine and you and I had a really, really kind of fantastic night. Like I still look back on that as one of the best nights that we had. And there's sex intimacy component to that too, for sure. But just overall, it was a really, really great night. And I think you feel the same, don't you, about that night? Yeah. And... And alcohol Ironic. played a big factor. Alcohol played a big factor, but alcohol played a factor. But you didn't drink like you would have because you were worried about the reputation you get from the two people we were with. They were older. You were her superior. And you didn't Ooh, want... I don't like that word. Okay. Um, she reported you were her boss. to me. She reported work. to you. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you didn't want to have this bad image of yourself. So you didn't drink like you would have if it had just been you and I or you and... I and other friends. Yeah. So I loved, and that's what, and I think that was one of those things I was like, oh my God, we're finally becoming mature drinkers. He's not getting smashed. We're enjoying wine throughout the day on this little wine country tour. And we went out to a nice dinner and had wine, but it wasn't crazy. Yeah. So. Did you know at the time, thank goodness that this other couple is with us because it's keeping Matt from going nuts? Yes, you, you told did. me that in the oh, pool at the... I knew at the time. Yes, you said, I really don't want to get well, super I, I drunk. Had, I had done that in the past. There were there were times when in front of colleagues and even people that reported to me, I had gotten smashed. Right, and so you were, you were I'd conscious. I never like, lost a job about it, but I'd been embarrassed about it. Yeah, and you were conscious of that. So I, I looked at that like that was a very mature decision, and I think that played into that um that good night with you know with the intimacy and respect because i thought maybe you were turning a corner yeah there was also one that sticks out for me in miami uh again work related again other people were there although i did get just bombed that night because they were your comfortable friends they were my comfortable friends (laughs) um but that there was a particularly like you were up for it like i don't know how else to say that you were Drinking hard too, and yeah. the kind of sexual intimacy component of that night was you were into it too, and it was really exciting and fun and awesome. Maybe you don't have that that part of the same memory. Yeah, I mean, I eventually passed out, so think earlier in the night. It was before we, before I passed out, obviously. Is there any time where we're just getting along well and drinking and having fun where there's not sex that has been good for you? I'm. You've related two stories. Any memories where it was really great and there wasn't sex? Probably not. Do you have any? Where we were drinking and it was moderate drinking? You can't think of any either. (laughs) Mostly because I was that. That was was what signified a good time for me. Okay. That we would uh, finish it off with a great sexual experience. And I thought of one. Oh, please. it was a, it was a time that we were on vacation for a long weekend. 
um, in California, and we skipped some, and it was for our convention, for a convention that we went to for the bread company that we um, owned, and we skipped the sessions. That's just because I passed out. Or I think we both passed out. You were... But I'm saying like the daytime and the walk on the beach and we had a lot of fun. We ate in a nice restaurant. It was fun. It was great. And I mean, that was a really nice time. It was great. And I really felt connected to you and yeah. it was a great time. That's true. Okay. So that's most of what I've got down here as far as uh, times when alcohol enhanced, not ruined a situation. Um I want to mention one of the books that I've referenced um, on our blog in the past as as kind of a top 10 recommendation for people to, per, to perhaps read a memoir. Um, it's I, I, I include this one on the list because I know there are a lot of people, a lot of alcoholics who um, are really big sports fans. And the book is written by a gentleman named Tim Kalashaw, who's a sports writer. And he, for a long time, he was on ESPN. I don't know if he still is or not. But he wrote a book called Drunk on Sports. And so I just feel like a lot of people who are big sports fans could really relate to a lot of what he wrote. But one of the big, he he, he wrestles with this. He wrestles with, you know, if I, he, he was in Texas. He says, if I didn't drink with Jerry Jones, the owner of the Cowboys, I wouldn't have gotten the inside scoops that I got, and I wouldn't have written the groundbreaking articles that I wrote, and I wouldn't have gotten the promotions that I got as a result. And I'm not singling out Jerry Jones. There are other people he wrote about. But he talks about how alcohol was a requirement for his job success. And I've known other people who have said that, that don't have flashy ESPN careers, that have, you know, say... I was in the business world and I was going to dinners with clients. And if I didn't drink with those clients, they wouldn't have trusted me. And if they didn't trust me, I wouldn't have gotten the order. And if I didn't get the order, I wouldn't have been successful. Mm -hmm. So from a career standpoint, I mean, there, there's certainly a little of that in, in my past too. For 10 years, I was in sales and marketing in the steel industry. And I was constantly at lunches and dinners with customers where there was alcohol involved and the alcohol played a part in those relationships. I just look back on that period of my life now and I'm like, oh, who cares? Who cares if I would have lost that order because I didn't get drunk with so-and-so on whatever night? Um, I just don't think in the grand scheme of things it was that important. But I also feel like that's a disrespectful way for me to look at it because for some people, that connection that they made with their customers was really, really important and would not have been possible without alcohol. So you've got the personal side. Our our relationship would not have existed had, had alcohol not been a part of it. You've got the career side that Tim Kalashaw writes about and lots of other people can relate to. How do you reconcile this? The fact that it's caused, alcohol has caused so much destruction in our lives and you and I, I think, I can speak for us both and say we hate alcohol and hate what it's done. Mm -hmm. Well, you're right. I think that in business relationships and in personal relationships, romantic or just friendships, alcohol plays such a role of like letting your guard down and it builds this like, um, I would, I would want to say false relationship, but we don't realize it. Um, yeah, you know, cause even with, 
yeah, you're right. Like even without without alcohol, like there were certainly people that we knew from your business that didn't drink and party like that and we didn't hang out with them because they weren't anybody you were interested in hanging out with and you were probably thinking, well, they're not a good of they're not as great of a salesperson as I am because they're not taking their clients out and whining and dining them. As and they don't have the relationship. I, was, I didn't necessarily think of myself as a great salesperson, even in the moment, okay. for the record. But I did think they're missing an opportunity because they're not whining and dining their customers. Yeah. So, I mean, just, I think because that is something that was easy for you to grab onto and have a, you know, give you an excuse to drink. That's how you kind of formulated your business relationships for those sales there were a couple clients that you took out that didn't drink and party like that. Like yeah. we did other things with them as a couple because you would had you know expense amount that you could spend, and um, so we did other things. But I'm just it is kind of sad when you look back and think about how many business deals are made with alcohol involved, and it maybe isn't in the best interest from either party or the customers or yeah. But how it opens up this sense of intimacy and confidence in the conf- yeah there there's a a part of it is you know we went to that strip club after we went to the steakhouse and we were both there so you can't pretend you weren't there you right. were there too right kind of that kind of a thing for sure um but yeah I, I just I was just gonna say I think too like it's it's hard to. Imagine some of the friendships that we have had that if alcohol hadn't played a major role in developing those relationships, even though now we could hang out with these people and not drink at all and be totally fine. Well, that's part of how I reconcile it. You know, there a big fear for high-functioning alcoholics when they first attempt sobriety is my connection with my friends is alcohol. Mm-hmm. Now what do I do? I'm going to lose all these friends. And it's a very traumatic kind of, I can't believe I'm going to lose all these friends. This is terrible I'm going to lose all these friends. My experience has been, yes, we have definitely rotated out a lot. The majority, the vast majority of our friends. Not that we don't speak to them anymore. We just don't have a lot in common. And we don't, you know, we, we run into them sometimes and it's great, but we don't seek each other out anymore Mm -hmm. but we've rotated in some other friends (coughs) excuse me um and so i don't think it's this dramatic thing like oh i'm sober now we have to call these 20 people we normally hang out with and tell them we'll never see them again and and then we have to be lonely until we can find 20 more people it's not like that it just naturally happens it's like I mean, if you look at your, your, let's say you're brand new at sobriety, or let's say you're not even sober yet. If you just look at the seasons of your life, if you've got a few years on you, you had friends where, you know, I used to live in Chicago and I was really close with these people. And then we moved and the move created a new set of friends and we lost touch with those other friends. Or, you know, I used to be in a bowling league and then I stopped bowling and I lost track of those people. And I, but instead I started swing dancing and I met some new people there. And so... It's I I think my experience is sobriety created uh, new experiences, new friends, but it was really quite a bit more organic than I thought it was going to be, and a, and way less 
just kind of dropping off the end of a cliff awful mm-hmm. than I thought it was going to be. It just happened over time. I know there are parties that take place that we don't get invited to. Yeah. When I was first sober, that would have ripped me up, the knowledge of that. Now, I don't care. I don't care if we <laughs> don't stand around in someone's kitchen and drink beer and wine. actually had that situation happen where we ran into people on Halloween night that were walking to a bar to go to a private event and they thought we were going to the same place and then it was like no I we probably aren't going where you're going we're going out to dinner like we'll peel off at you know the end of the block here I just thought it was funny and I felt so bad because one of the ladies was so embarrassed and I could feel her feeling embarrassed like she put her foot in her mouth we and I didn't went get invited. yeah and I was like it's not a big deal I really don't care and then we saw you know because Facebook we saw that it was a private party and I was so I texted her and said I don't want you to feel like you embarrassed or made us feel bad because that really would be the last place I'd want to be at that point and I anyhow yeah. you know um but I think too with the friendships like if they if they are friendships and relationships worth keeping, these people will respect the decision about not drinking and you'll find other things to do. And even if they are people that always have to have a drink in their hand, maybe you won't find them as relatable anymore. And if they are people that respect what you're doing, they'll go without having a drink in their hand to hang out with you and do something else. Yeah. So don't feel like you have to drop off. Now, I know we've talked about how we stopped having much of a social calendar for that year that you were trying sobriety. I think that's really important um, in early sobriety. But I think there's ways that you can still be connected to people and really a year but does I, go I fast. Think people look at that in panic mode like what do you mean I am supposed to have no social calendar for a year? That means I'll never have a social calendar. I'll If I lose touch with these people I will be a pariah. That's just not how it works. Right. You lose touch with people and you make touch with new people and and maybe you reconnect with other people down the road. Like, I, th- I think one of the one of the factors, one of the things that would have happened. This is a w- another way that I reconcile this in my own head. In college, okay, I, I don't know how we would have met without alcohol, okay. But putting that aside, I, if if I didn't drink in college, I would have found something else to be kind of passionate about. I probably, given my background would have gotten really into the soccer program at our school, which they won a national championship while we were there. And I didn't, I didn't pay any attention to that because I was too busy drinking. But if I didn't have alcohol, I would have found something. And that, that would be a natural thing that I would have been interested in. And I would have made friends that are more into athletics than they are drinking. And we still would have had a good time. And I, I just don't think it's, it would be a different set of friends but I don't think it is a as dramatic of a thing. Just because I had fun with alcohol, I would have had fun doing other stuff. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, because now we have fun and we don't drink. I have more fun now than I did when I drank. Yeah. I went to. Here's a great example. I went to uh, University of Denver men's soccer team made the NCAA soccer tournament this year, and their first game was on a Tuesday afternoon in late November. And, you know, I, I thought about inviting, you know, I thought about going in the last minute and I thought about inviting someone to come with me, but most of the soccer friends I have are school teachers and they wouldn't have been able to be there at two o'clock in the afternoon. So I just went on my own and it was like a blizzard that day. It was crazy. And I ran into another soccer guy that 
um, that has a flexible enough job that he could just go at two in the afternoon. He didn't have anyone there with him either. And we sat together and we had a ball. So just like drunks migrate to the bar and find each other and strike up conversations, if you have other interests, you're going to find your people there too. And it'll be just as much fun. Does that make sense? Yeah. Does it make you sad at all to think about the fact that you and I would not have gotten together if it wasn't for alcohol? Um, I'm going to try to word this really, really nicely. Yes. <laughs> yes. Or uh, no, no, it doesn't yeah. make me sad. Sorry, I went the wrong way to that. <laughs> it would make me sad because I wouldn't have, have our you kids now and have the kids. <laughs> But I wouldn't know any different. I You'd wouldn't still know have any cats. better. It would just right. be different I, cats. Yeah. And I wouldn't know any different. I wouldn't know any better. Yeah. Um, True that. So that's kind of like one of those questions like, you know, that you can't really answer well. Yeah. You wouldn't know any different. Um, Do you, let me, let me ask, let me, a couple other things. When I talked about some of the highlights of our dating and, and married life that had alcohol as an enhancement, like the Miami thing and the wine country thing, I can honestly say that there have been some times that you and I have had now in long-term sobriety that were even better than those times, especially like sex and intimacy-wise. And you're rolling your eyes at me now. Yeah, because we don't have any fun unless it's with sex. Well, we do. We have a ton of fun that is unrelated to that. And that's the point. That's one of the points, right? We can have fun that isn't related, doesn't have to end in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. But I can also say that as special as those nights were, we've had even more special sexual encounters without any alcohol. Yeah. I mean, it's taken a lot of work and it wasn't right away. And the conditions have to be right because there isn't alcohol there to make Make it work even if the conditions aren't right. Or so, God only knows that the alcohol made it not favorable. It, it, it ruined it a lot more ways. There was most of the time, for me, I look back and I think there were very few times where it enhanced, especially towards the end yeah. of your drinking, where yeah. it really enhanced that. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. But we also, like for your 50th birthday, we went to Steamboat in the summer. Steamboat Springs, not to ski. It was in the summer. But that, I think that might be the best weekend away we've ever had together. Mm-hmm. We slept in, you know, we went to a rodeo that we didn't know was going to be happening. We went out to a nice dinner and there was no alcohol related stress or arguments or anything. And so, you know, it, another way that I can reconcile that, yes, sometimes alcohol was an enjoyable enhancement to our life is by looking at the fact that without alcohol, we have even better times. And we're older and less, you know, agile than we used to be. And we're still having fun. I think more fun. Yeah. Yeah. Anything there? Or no, you just going <laughs> to leave me hanging? <laughs> you think of any other non-alcoholic experiences that were really, really fun? Or is that it? Just thank God for that one time in Steamboat. <laughs> Uh, How about the 14ers? Those are hard. They kick my ass. Yeah, but we wouldn't have done them. But Yeah. Um, There are lots of things. And just the day-to-day. So it doesn't even have to be 
big grandiose stuff, I guess, is where my mind has been taking me. Sure. Just the day-to-day. Yeah. Just the normalcy, the living your life, like, not walking on eggshells. Like, to me, that just seems so much better than, like, the weekend away. Yeah. I mean, I know it's great, but the enhancement on the day-to-day normal life is just so much better. Yeah. It kind of overshadows everything for me because all I wanted was, like, just to be happy and have a normal-ish life. You know, when you would be drinking and it would be really hard to know what your mood was going to be and how the alcohol was going to affect you. So I guess that's what's been like, you know, been on my heart while you've been talking about these experiences. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Amen to that. The lack of mental gymnastics, the lack of eggshells, the lack of constantly... The tension. Uh, Yeah. So much better. Yeah. So I'm not going to go so far as to thank alcohol for bringing us together. But I sure am glad we found each other one way or the other. And I'm glad alcohol is out of our life so that we can enjoy the rest of it. Yep. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.